Richard Alpern, the T1 of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is a prospect analyst for Fangraphs, the proprietor of the very important Scouting the Sally, Mike Newman. The listener uh, will certainly be aware that all of the minor league seasons have ended. All of the data has been compiled, both of the uh, quantitative and the qualitative sort. And now is when we sort through all of that and begin to make sense of it. Helping us do that today is Mike Newman. And in particular, Newman and I look at three prospects, and not, and not just those prospects themselves, uh, but also the context in which they play, and also other conversations that those prospects might start. The specific names are as follows. Seattle Mariners catching prospect, or as Newman calls him, Uber catching prospect, Mike Zunino, who played very well both at the low A and double A levels this year. Other Seattle Mariners prospect, shortstop who played at double A as well this season, Brad Miller. And finally, a German outfielder, formerly of that country's Bundesliga, and currently playing in the twin system, 19-year-old Max Kepler. Those are the specific names that are invoked, but of course, uh, there's more in the way of ideas and Newman's own expertise uh, to follow as well on this edition of Fangraphs Audio with prospect analyst Mike Newman, which begins right now. People have said that a lot of people have probably written, well I don't know I've said it aloud but certainly written it in their diaries yeah for whatever reason it's all yeah. about this yeah they're too afraid to say it aloud I, if I kept a diary you, you'd be included in it well, I hope that's for the best the uh, you're here Mikey Newman to talk about some baseball prospects sometimes yeah yeah uh, well that's why you're here today the so the minor league uh, the minor league seasons, plural, um, are all over. Uh, I guess the champions have been named. The belts and titles uh, have been distributed to same. Yes, which I pay absolutely no attention to. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's not really why they exist. I guess. I. I although I guess um, I don't know if you're able to go to any playoff sorts of games, but I assume that the players. Um, I assume that they proceed as if it is important, and perhaps it is important to them because that's generally speaking, they're at the highest level of baseball they've been to that date. Yeah, I, th- I think it's very important to. Uh, I was surprised how important winning is actually to the minor league teams themselves. Um, the employees of the minor league teams actually really want to um, win, and and it's surprising. When you look at it on like the side of the fence that I'm on, where I'm only looking at good individual players, and if the team's zero and a hundred, I could care less as long as I'm seeing some good individual players. But for the people working in these organizations, like for example, the Rome Braves, I think they won 12 games in the first half or something like that. Then they won the second half. I mean, that front office was just amped up that they had a winner. It, it didn't matter if they had no prospects. It, it didn't matter at all. They were just so excited to have a playoff, um, minor league playoff team. And it was kind of funny. Like, I actually went up to Chattanooga for one of the games where I saw Zunino and Jackson. And We should say Mike, uh, Mike Zunino, a catching prospect for the Seattle Mariners. An uber-catching prospect, right. yes. The third overall pick in 2012 who's been 
moved extremely quickly and has handled it beautifully. Um, but I went up to Chattanooga to see him, and it was uh, Saturday night maybe, Friday night, and it was actually a pretty small crowd. So the the playoffs seemed to be a motivator more for the front office than, like, the fans. And um, I guess you could say, I mean, I haven't talked to players asking if they really cared whether it was the playoffs or not, but, I mean, I was sitting in the stands next to it just happened to be a Mariner scout and Jackson was playing Chattanooga and it was the Mariners and it was a pitcher's duel between Tawan Walker and a number of Chattanooga lookouts pitchers um, who were all very good and threw extremely hard. But, um, I mean, there were scouts in the stands like giving fist pumps and stuff. Like they were just juiced up. They were juiced up about the competition, not necessarily the prospects or in addition to the prospects. Well, they were happy, you know, to watch the prospects and stuff, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's their organization, and on any level, they want to see their organization win. And, uh, I mean, I've seen guys, like I've seen Terry Collins, who's, who sat directly behind me at Savannah Games, like living and dying on every pitch. The people that work in these organizations, no matter what the level, um, they want to win and they want to have a put good teams on the field to some extent and get excited when their guys perform, you know? Yeah, and I guess it would be, I mean, beyond just a morale booster, there must be something to be said. I don't know what percentage of, you know, prospect development it would account for, but if you say uh, this player is accustomed, you know, he, he won at, the, at this level, he won at, you know, at, uh, in A-ball in the Sally League, um, and I guess the sort of camaraderie you would develop with other people in your organization, having that status, you know, having all of that happen, uh, that could be something that uh, could benefit a player later on, or you know, give him uh, a sense of enthusiasm about the game that he may not have otherwise. Um, maybe. I mean, for me, I, I find it interesting, you know, some of the relationships within these the um, actual minor league franchises that uh, re-up with teams every few years and actually the organizations themselves. And at times there are, um, there's friction because the, um, for example, in Buffalo, the Mets, um, Buffalo opted out of the Mets and went with the Blue Jays because they weren't happy with the level of talent that the Mets were giving them. Like Buffalo expected that they were going to be a winning AAA franchise, and then that would bring people to the park. And when that didn't happen and they weren't getting good players, and I'm not talking about, like, the best, best prospects going to Buffalo because a lot of them did go through Buffalo. I'm talking about, like, 4A Mike Hessman hitting 36 home runs in AAA with no chance ever to contribute at the major league level. But um, he's a very good organizational minor league player. Like, there are actual franchises who get angry that they don't receive enough of those players which actually is kind of thrown in the face of actual player development. You know what I mean? Yeah, I could see that. I mean, I would assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, that it would affect AAA less than it might a lower a lower league where where you actually really are developing talent. But AAA has always sort of been a combination of older and younger talent, right? Yeah, but still, I mean, a lot of these. Um, 
a lot of these teams and a lot of the people working within these organizations do want to win and feel like on some uh, level, even if it's minor, that more people will show up at the park if there's a winning team. So there's a financial motivation there. And um, if, a, if a team really stinks, they feel like the turnstiles won't be turning as much. And I don't know if that is true or false, um, because the more minor league baseball I go to, the more it seems like people are more interested in Thirsty Thursdays and half-priced Natty Lights than actual baseball. Well, I think but, well, I would argue that there's room for both because, well, I don't know about Natty Light, but uh, uh, cheap beer, uh, that's a that's a tradition. That's a that's a uh, that's something I can hang my hat on. You know what? Go to Asheville yeah. and spend a game watching the tourists and the fact that they have Highland, which is a very fine craft brewery, selling beer at the park. Uh-huh. And then tell me if you can ever go back to Natty Light. And as a matter of fact, if any time you go to a ballpark and actually do Thirsty Thursday, <clears throat> that phrase has been actually coined and trademarked. It started in Asheville. So there, you um, go. there might be a few bucks going to the Asheville tourists who then can go and upgrade to their fine craft beer uh, distributors at the ballpark yeah. while they laugh at everybody else for selling cheap Natty Light and having to pay them for it. I still think that there's a room for all the beers. I like all the beers. A different con- It's a question of context. It's a question of context. Mike, Mike Newman, let's, let's talk about a player. Let's talk about a player, a player whose name you've invoked already. Uh, his name is Mike Zunino, and um, he's actually appeared uh, – his name has appeared um, um, – uh, in you, uh, recently in Electronic Pages of Fangas because you have started your Newman's Own list. And this is, I think this is the best players you've seen this year uh, in person, right? Yes. Yeah, it's the best that I've seen this season. I kind of wanted readers to, um, it's almost kind of like a diary of where I've been, just doing it in, in list form and letting people know, you know, the guys that I've seen. And, uh, yeah, Zanino was definitely one of the better players that I saw overall this season and you saw him uh did you did you see him up in jackson is that where or you saw him in no i saw him in chattanooga okay for the uh southern league playoffs um i went up for i think game i want to say game two or three of the series yeah i'm not gonna uh, it's not gonna be a big deal you could say either and, way. we believe you and i <laughs> and i wound up seeing zanino unfortunately he had caught the night before so he wound up uh serving as designated hitter but I got in a, a chance to see him take some swings, and uh, but he has a very impressive uh, swing, and it looks like he's going to generate an awful lot of power for um, a guy who catches. And I mean, the reports about the defense are that they're solid, and the defense might even be ahead of the offense. And if that is true, then the Mariners have themselves a heck of a catcher to build around. Now, Zuniga is interesting, right? Because I mean, before he was um, hitting so well, um, and it seems like playing so well overall. Um, uh, first uh, for for Seattle's Low A team, which I think is in Everett, Everett, Washington, just outside Seattle. Yeah, that's going to be short season. Right, and then uh, and then uh, the Double A uh, Jackson Generals, I guess. Uh, he was also uh, happened to be. Uh, you know, you could uh, probably the best hitter, maybe second best hitter. He and Preston Tucker were pretty close this season, at least, uh, for the University of uh, Florida Gators baseball team, 
who even though they didn't win anything, uh, they didn't win the College Baseball World Series, they were still they still had the most interesting talent of any team. I'm curious for you leading up to uh, the draft and uh, you know probably having some access to college baseball on video if not necessarily uh, in uh, live i'm wondering if that's something that you'll take advantage of or or for you is it is it more important to get to games for me it's much more important to get to games um you know i've found that especially when i watch minor league baseball I have found that the looks that I get off of television are different than the looks that I get in person. Um, and it's especially hard for me when looking at hitters because I rely so heavily on side angles and seeing hitters swing from their open side. Mm-hmm. So I'm basically looking at their letters and watching things like swing plane and hand speed and stuff like that that you just can't get from kind of a straightforward view. Um, and, you know, plus their, their considerations of build. Uh, everybody to me seems uh, thinner on television than they actually are in person. Um, and, and pitchers are a little bit better. But, you know, it's like I've seen Julio Teron three times in person, and I've seen him on television as well. And, you know, the curveball looks so much sharper on television and the changeup drops so much more and it's almost like i'm looking at two different guys when i see them in person and on tv so that makes it difficult for me at times um for me the interesting thing about zanino was kind of the same story that uh holton got the year before was that they were talking about him being more of a safe need pick than a guy that's really an impact player and um coming out of the 2000 draft 2012 draft it seems like as of right now, um, Zunino is looking at like the kind of first impact player that's going to surface, surface from that draft class, which uh, likely surprised a lot of people. Right. And actually, uh, yeah, and back to the University of Florida team, I think that the first uh, actual player from the draft to make it to the major leagues, it could be wrong, but I think it was first, is, was uh, Paco Rodriguez, uh, who was a left-handed reliever um, from Florida, and now serving at least as of a, a week ago he was uh, serving as a, a left-handed arm for Los Angeles Dodgers team that was in the thick of uh, playoff contention. Um, so, yeah, that's interesting, just that, that dichotomy, I guess, between uh, our, the college player, our idea of the college player, but then, um, you know, what, what he might actually contribute at the major league level. I mean, if you think a guy is close to the major leagues, that has value. Yeah, but there's you know there's something also to be said about about college players and and you know I've talked about this before and fangrass readers uh, love to dispute it is that I always talk about kind of the importance of age level and that a lot of readers and a lot of prospect fans are just like well you got to give this guy Mulligan because he went to college you can't really count his development at the same race of a guy that's been in minor league baseball and uh, my question is always kind of why not like. When Mike Zanino was in college, I mean, he probably made a choice at some time to go play his 56 games and maybe some summer ball, while somebody like Byron Buxton would be having his first full year in, let's say, Beloit, and would be playing 120 to 140 games. There's a lot of development time, uh, gaps in there just from the games played and things like that. So 
that development club keeps going for college guys. Um, if you look, you find that the younger college guys that are drafted, like Pedroia, uh, Longoria, I mean, those guys still still surfaced at the big league level by the age of 22, um, where many star-level players surface at that age. So it worked out for them. But what winds up happening is you have a lot of college guys who are drafted at 21-22, and then they go to rookie ball and go to high A maybe, especially um, those guys that go to the Cal League uh, their first full season and, like, dominate. Um, but then they're 24 in double A, which is kind of the year that most guys are expected to service, surface as average regulars. And then you have all these college guys like a Colin Cowgill who dominates the upper levels at 26 and people get all excited and he's really nothing more than a bench player because um, that's just kind of how aging curves work, you know? So um, college can be very tough when it comes to um, judging talent and how that talent's going to play at the major league level, but it still has something to do with the age it went at which somebody's drafted. Now, Nolan uh, Fontana, or Fontana, I think probably Fontana, he was he was around uh, the Sally League this year. Yes, I did not see him, though. You were not able to see him. And then, and then there nope. was also Preston Tucker, who played a level below. Uh, uh, he was down in the uh, – he was in the New York Penn League for the Astros. Uh, the, all those three guys – uh, and this is including Zunino as well, were at the top of their uh, respective leagues in terms of offensive production. Um, you could say maybe that uh, maybe Fontana was a, was a little bit old, 21 in the salary league, but that's not ancient, certainly. Uh, have, you, you, have you seen just off the top of your head, and I don't know to what degree you follow college again, but have you seen a college produce that sort of talent uh, just from one draft class and so immediately? Oh, my gosh. Um, you know, I know Arizona State's been a factory the last few years. I mean, you're looking at Kipnis and Pedroia and other guys as well that I can't even think of off the top of my head. Um, but it, it does seem like, to me, a lot of these college uh, teams make runs where they just produce a ton of guys in a very short time. Like, I, when, I was in co- and when I was getting ready to go to college, I was recruited by the University of Tennessee, and I went down for a campus visit and was walking through the locker room, and that team had Ari Dickey and Todd Helton. Those guys are good. I mean, on it. They're different, yeah, those guys aren't bad. Different, uh, guys, different <laughs> ways. I, um, oh, as a short aside, did you see the uh, the, the changeup that Ari Dickey threw last night through Thursday night? I, I did not. Have you? I'm sure you have captured some gifts and posted them somewhere. Correct? I have done that. Yeah, it was part of the daily notes today. Uh, if you get a look, it's. I mean, he throws the pitch almost never, either one percent or zero percent of the time, uh, according to uh, a couple different sources. Uh, it's it's probably one of the most beautiful changeups you've, you've seen. He throws it like uh, mid 70s, and the, the, I'm watching it now. It's disgusting. The depth. If you could see the third, if you could see the third and slowest. Uh, GIF, that is that is particularly amusing. It doesn't really, and you could tell. I mean, Garrett Jones is not certainly the world's most disciplined batter, uh, but he is a major leaguer, and and he hits righties very well. Uh, well, the, yeah, I mean, maybe that's the, yeah, that's the case too. But that changeup is silly. Yes, uh, it is. And it's from a guy who hardly. Yeah, that's ever, not a bad changeup. Yeah, so maybe he'll work that into his repertoire. Um, uh, right. So you already you you saw that right, and so you. These, these colleges can produce guys like that. In any case, yeah. that'll be. And Ari Dickey actually threw a towel at me. 
just to let me know, like he was he was coming out of the showers or whatever, and threw his towel essentially on me. Yeah, just kind of tell me like, hey, you're a nothing, and I'm Ari Dickey. I'm Ari Dickey. Recognize. I'm going to be drafted. He didn't know what his path was. Uh, well, he knew he knew he would be drafted very high, which right. he was. Um, he didn't know at the time that he, I think he was missing a ligament in his arm um, that caused some issues. Uh, and and he didn't know that he would have to be reborn as a knuckleballing 20-game winner. Um, but, yeah, he, he pretty much knew at that point that he was something special, and he was not afraid to tell anybody. Yeah. Well, uh, right, I guess at, at that age uh, you, you don't have to feel like that. Yeah, but you're a little older and you do the same thing. Hey, easy. I'm a little. I'm more than a little bit older than that. Um, hey, uh, let's stay in the Mariners organization. I know that on uh, one of your lists, I don't know if it's for this year, or if this is your sort of overall list, uh, but you had um, another uh, another, as I say, Mariners prospect, a shortstop, one whom I discussed briefly with Dave Cameron earlier in the week. But I'm curious as for your thoughts on him, and that's Brad Miller. Uh, this you is, know, this is not the center, the former center. Uh, and in the NBA, this is uh, this is a prospect in the Mariners organization. Yeah, and you know, I was kind of surprised with Brad Miller actually. Um, I no, where did you where did you see park. him? Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, well, I saw him in the same game with Zanino. Um, that Jackson team was actually uh, pretty strong from a prospect standpoint and from a number standpoint too. I mean, Zanino was great in Double A. Brad Miller was great in Double A. Uh, they have a, a kid named Romero who was playing second base for them, and between the Cal League and then Double A, I think he had 350 on the season with something like 23 home runs. He had just an amazing uh, season. And then, you know, on the mound, you've got Tawan Walker. I mean, that was a pretty loaded team from a prospect standpoint. And I really wasn't expecting a whole lot from Brad Miller. I was kind of expecting to kind of shoulder shrug and go, hey, this guy walks some. Yeah, he's a little old older, you know, 22, so he's not uh, a spring chicken, you know. Um, I expected a guy that could maybe man shortstop a little bit, probably look more like a utility guy. I, I was going there with a, with thinking that I was going to come away being like, okay, he's another utility guy, whatever. But I was impressed. Um, he showed really nice contact ability, which reflects the numbers, worked very deep counts. Uh, look like a potential top-of-the-order guy for me. The only thing that might keep him from really um, being that is, is a lack of foot speed. Um, but what was most impressive was was his ability to handle shortstop. Um, he did a nice job and looks like he could be a guy who stays there. And maybe it's not great um, shortstop play like uh, what they have now as far as defense, but if you have an average shortstop that can hit 285, um you have a conversation, you know, do you want a guy who hits one whatever or, or low twos and, and, and hovers around the Mendoza line like Brendan Ryan who plays elite defense? Or do you want a guy who's more balanced on a team that doesn't have much offense? You know, uh, the thing that Cameron said about him was that, um, like you were saying, contrary to that, that idea uh, you might have about Brad Miller, and which and I'm not saying it's the case for you, but it could be race-related. I uh, just want to uh, invoke that because, it's you know, it's possible. We think... A guy named Brad. His name is Brad, and he's white, and he plays yep. shortstop. Come on, come on! You're not fooling me. Seriously, Carson, and this isn't really talked about much, but yeah. but I have enough conversations with uh, scouts at at ballparks to know that there's a you know there's a bias against certain ethnicities at certain positions, and 
Um, most people would tell you when they go to a ballpark, they're looking for a Hispanic guy playing shortstop. And, and it's not, you know, it's just the athleticism and the range to play shortstop. I mean, I've become accustomed to the only good shortstops that I really see are named, uh, from a defensive standpoint, are named Vinicio, Adrianza, um, Sardinas. How about Didi? Uh, uh, Didi Gregorius? Yeah. Yes, very nice defensive shortstop. Right. And so, those guys are uh, Tovar. I mean, those guys are flash. Those guys have rocket arms and great athleticism. And a lot of times you see a guy who who rolls out there, and he's a guy named Miller. And you go, uh, you know, I saw Nick Franklin. I didn't think he was a shortstop. I saw... You know, people ask me about a kid from Hagerstown named Martinson because he puts up big power numbers at the low levels, and you just kind of shoulder shrug, and you go, oh, I can't play shortstop, you can't play shortstop. I mean, I saw Joe Panic, who was a first-round pick, and I left the park not thinking he could play shortstop because right. it came down to can you make the play deep in the hole. Right. And right. a lot of these Hispanic guys can make that play. Brad Miller can make that play. I saw him make that play. So, so that holds a lot of weight with me is being able to make the hardest play at shortstop and then going under the assumption that he could, well, if he can make the hard plays, he's going to be able to handle the routine ones too. Yeah, and that was uh, what Cameron was saying is that uh, there were quite a few errors for Miller on the season, but they were mostly of, and you know, this might be its own separate problem. You know, to what degree it's treatable, I don't know, uh, but that most of his errors came on just the most simple of plays. Um, which, you know, might be an issue of concentration. It might just be the, fa- uh, you know, reveal the fact that to succeed as a major league defender, uh, there's this great deal of concentration that's required. That's, you know, probably not something that's invoked with consistency or, you know, consistently, but th- there's a great deal of concentration that you need to have and sort of, and, and to bring to every batted ball. Yeah. And, you know, I don't get, 20 game looks or something where I could say, oh, are they con, you know, are they concentrating on everything? What I can do is, is in small doses, I can see if a guy has the range, if a guy has the arm strength, if he projects as a guy that can stick at the position. And a lot of times, if there's a bat, if there's hard hands or a guy that's just totally and completely, uh, aloof, um, I can usually spot that pretty quickly. But I didn't really see any of that with Brad Miller. I saw a really steady shortstop who could make plays, had good hands, who could get the balls in the hole, had enough of an arm to stick to position. Uh, I came away awfully impressed. Do you think that it's easier? It, you're sort of saying, like, when you have these uh, first-person looks at players, do you think it's easier in those instances where it's one game or two games at a time? It's easier for you to notice a player who has a high ceiling as opposed to a high floor. I was talking about this with Mark Hewlett last week. Talked about Corbin Joseph, who had really an excellent season as a 23-year-old, both at double and triple A this year with the Yankees, at least an excellent offensive season. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's a player who has a high floor. He's, he doesn't really yeah, have... Yeah, I've seen Joseph. You have, I, you've I seen saw Joseph. Joseph a couple years ago, yeah. Yeah, and uh, well, maybe we, you and I talked about this briefly too off-air. Um, Joseph has got a great approach. Probably not a second baseman, or at least not an average second baseman. Um, but when you're at the when you're at the game, do you think it's easier to spot the player, or easier for you in a short look to see a player and say, "Oh, this is a guy with a high ceiling," as opposed to identifying one 
with a high floor, which is going to be based less on physicality and athleticism and more on sort of approach generally? Well, you know, ultimately, I unless it's something totally out of the ordinary, like I'll, I'll never try and just see like one game look. Um, there's usually always a batting practice with the game, which you can actually see a lot. I mean, if I go to the park, I'm usually getting there at about 3 o'clock. So I am seeing a lot of times full infield practice, um, pregame BPs for both teams, uh, like I said, infield for both teams. I'm seeing extra work. I'm seeing side sessions for pitchers. And then I'm seeing the game when I'm already tired and have been at the park for four or five hours. So um, you wind up seeing a lot. So if I were to go see, and I didn't see BP and infield for Corbin Joseph, but, but if I had, I probably would have seen Joseph in batting practice field 20 or 30 ground balls. Um, I would have seen a full round of batting practice open side and been able to get video on that, and then the at-bats and then the game action. So when I first started watching games, the, the scouts that I w- was talking to was like, yeah, you know, you can come around the corner, because I used to literally live around the corner from Savannah's ballpark, and they'd be, well, you can come around the corner and get here five of and then watch your three games or whatever. He goes, that they go, you'd learn more getting here at 4 o'clock and watching full BPs. And I kind of shrugged it off, and I was like, yeah, whatever. You know, I, I can't sneak away from my family for that long, whatever. But once I finally started going to BP, especially on, on like, overnight trips, um, and having nothing to do other than be like a ballpark rat, you start to see all those things. So by the time the game starts, I have a pretty good idea of what I'm looking for for guys just based on their practice sessions and trying to then justify and, and verify what I'm seeing. So does ceiling pop off the page if I just show up at the park to watch a guy? Um, sure. I find a lot of times, though, that that winds up being trickery um, because you're seeing these highlights, but then there's no meat behind it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um <clears throat> Yeah, and, and that I guess that's interesting. I mean, who are we talking about this with, with regard to? Oh, We're yeah. talking about Joseph, but Joseph I'm, I kind of turned it yeah. into more of a general conversation about guys. No, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I think that's interesting. I mean, I don't necessarily need to talk about Corbett Joseph all all day, although I am interested in him. But yeah, I was sort of you're awfully infatuated with him. Uh, yeah, I have a I have a situation with him that uh, I'm not saying it's healthy, um, but I'm saying it exists. Can I say that, Mike Newman? Can I say that? Can I admit that to you? That's okay. okay. That's okay. You know, he's not a bad ball player. So, although although I did get some chat questions yesterday, like can Corbin Joseph and David Adams replace Robinson Cano? And I'm just like, well, if you want a second division ball club, if you want a fourth place right. team, sure. <laughs> right. No. And yeah. And I'm not. Uh, I'm not suggesting that he's going to be Cano level, uh, but he does sort of seem like a player that, because he doesn't have rampant athleticism, you know. That could just kind of he's he could be a meh type player to some people, you know, because he doesn't have that upside. But players like that are sort of excited to me. I'm like, well, this guy is going to actually help your team. You know what I mean? Like, because you're not going to be paying him that much, and he's going to be going to be worth more than replacement level. So that's the type of well, player. Yeah, and you know, when I go to the park, and especially to watch prospects from certain organizations, and, and mainly the Yankees, there's a certain level that a prospect has to be at in order for me to say, okay, he's going to have a chance to play with the Yankees. Because there are certain markets like Boston and New York where you can't, 
let a guy go out there and hit 220 for half a season and adjust. You know, Machado probably wouldn't be happening in New York and just kind of learning as he goes and being thrown into the fire. I mean, that, that wouldn't happen in New York that much. And, and it probably wouldn't happen in Boston, um, might not happen in L.A. There are certain organizations that just the fans have expectations for greatness all the time, and the teams spend a lot of money. So you look at a guy like Joseph and you go, okay, he's probably going to become lost in the organization because he's, he's never going to start in New York. But he could be a decent player for another ball club. And, and the same can be said about they have some other guys like Brett Marshall. I love him. He's a right-handed pitcher that was in double-A this year. What, and what, uh, what organization is he in? He's with the Yankees, too. Okay, okay. And uh, he profiles as one of those heavy ground ball, number three types, and he may wind up not ever pitching for the Yankees because he's just not exciting enough. And the tools aren't big enough, and... You know, everybody wants Gary Sanchez to come up and hit 30 home runs tomorrow. You know, there's not that level of patience to let a guy kind of figure it out where, you know, Yankees fans will say, yeah, what about Brett Gardner? But Brett Gardner was kind of an accident, wasn't he? Um, I mean, are you suggesting that his his parents weren't using birth control? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, I'm oh. suggesting that he wound up being a really good player kind of out of necessity than being a guy. I mean, the Yankees fans were like, oh, we can't go with this Gardner guy. And then they went with him, and he turned out to be good. And now they're going, oh, we can we can develop too. And, and right. it's just like... Right, He has it, a weird... You know, it was, it, was, it was not the plan. You don't... It, right, you don't normally... It's happen. Brett Gardner is a strange player because the, the exact things that make him valuable are like... They're like... He has all of the things that make you not... Like you could be really effective as a major leaguer, but not necessarily like a huge, huge prospect. In that he's got his excellent plate discipline, and he somehow has preserved it into the majors, even though he doesn't hit for power. And also, he's a core. I mean, he could probably play center field, but he's a corner outfielder with like who's like you know true talent, feel you know uh, ability in left field is like twenty runs above average. And, like, you put all those things together, and, yeah, he's like a four-win player when he's healthy, right? I mean, something like that. Yeah, yeah, know. and he's not a – but he's not a guy that would typically start for the Yankees. Right, and, yeah, it required – I'm know, sure it required a couple of injuries or whatever. I forget yeah, exactly Yeah, they how would it. bring an upgrade in from the outside. Right. They would go trade for Curtis Granderson. They would go trade Montero for Pineda, even though that worked out. Uh, it didn't work out. Um, at least it hasn't worked out yet, but – for anyone, for anyone really go, at this point. <laughs> that trade yeah, for, it really hasn't worked out for anyone yet. For anyone really at this point, but, you know, I'll take Montero's 15, 20 home runs over, I think, the combined, like, 20 innings from both pitchers that the Yankees got. Um, uh, that was just a crazy deal. But, <clears throat> you know, the Yankees will usually go out and make something happen, and they've done that over many years. So you look at a lot of guys like Joseph, a lot of those C-plus level prospects, and you go, well, this guy will probably never play for the Yankees. Right. You know, who's going to come and pluck him? Who's going to pluck, you know, like the Rangers plucked David Murphy away from the Red Sox. Um, and the Yankees have filled a lot of other rosters with their cast-offs over the years. I mean, the Yankees were like, ha, 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 we got rid of Melky Cabrera right at the right time. Ha, ha, ha. And then he goes and they're like, what? We wish we had him back now. So, you know, Yankees fans are kind of funny in that way. And uh, they're, they're always... Uh, 
their their cast offs wind up being very good big leaguers for other organizations. Right, and you, you invoked the Red Sox before, and that happens as well. I mean, this year we've seen an All Star type season uh, from from Josh Reddick, who mm-hmm. was expendable because because for a team like the Red Sox, they need to feel like they're they have elite talent and that they can guarantee, which which doesn't allow them to take a little bit of extra time with someone who might develop into something, as as Josh Reddick has this year. Exactly. So that that's kind of a recurring issue with some of these teams, and it's a reason why you know you might not see Joseph really for uh, a little while longer. And if you do see Joseph, you may see him included as the third or fourth player in a deal for uh, for the Yankees to fill a very big hole, because um, there are places that Joseph would probably be on a big league roster right now. Right. Like like a, like the Houston Astros if Jose Altuve didn't exist. Yeah, and a number of other teams. I mean, if you look, you know, I had a really interesting conversation with a scout about Matt Davidson because I went to see Diamondbacks Matt Davidson, who's, you know, he's a top 100 guy. He's considered one of the best third-base prospects in baseball. And uh, I saw him, and I just kind of shoulder-shrugged. He was big. He was slow. He wasn't a great third baseman. You could tell he could swing it a little bit, but he's going to strike out a ton. Um, There was just not a lot to get super excited about there. It was like, oh, yeah, he's okay, you know. Uh, and some, and there was a, a scout in attendance, and he goes, well, do you think he's an average regular? And I said, no, probably not. And he looks at me, and he goes, well, go home and take a look at, like, the leaderboards, like Fangrass leaderboards, and think about what he is to you. Is he a 250 hitter? And I said, yeah, maybe. Does he hit 20 home runs? Yeah, maybe. Uh, is he a, uh average defender? I said, no, I'm probably more fringe or whatever. And he goes, go on the leaderboards and find a guy who's going to hit 250 with 20 home runs, and be a, a fringe average defender. And that third baseman that I described to the scout was like a top half third baseman yeah. at the big league level. Yeah. Better than Chris Johnson. I mean, better than Chris Johnson. Yeah, so it's not like, you know, I, I kind of live in the, you know, being 35, I kind of live in the 80s, 90s still, when every team had a third baseman that was like Matt Williams and hit lots of home runs and, uh, I mean, I grew up on Howard Johnson, you know, winning home run titles. And uh, you don't realize that there just really aren't that many good third basemen anymore. Like Kyle Seeger is almost a four-win player. And Pedro Alvarez hits, you know, he has some power, but, but he hits 240 and, and, and is a three-win player. So when I compare on that, you go, oh, well, maybe Matt Davidson's one of the top half you know, going to be a top half third baseman in the league, and and there are guys that Joseph is probably going to be better than that play third base right now. Um, I mean, he could probably do close to what Alberto Cayaspo is doing right now. <laughs> you know, right? And that's a guy who's had a job for a bunch of the year. So there you are. Uh, that's a, that's a thing. Hey, listen, I, I would be remiss if I didn't get to one player uh, because it allows me. Uh, to sort of this is an example of um, kind of strange sort of baseball tourism. Um, the uh, b- baseball is not a very popular thing in Europe, um, but there is a European academy. I don't know a ton about it, uh, but it, it certainly intrigues me because it combines baseball with Europe, which sounds great. And they uh, do have professional leagues. And they do have they do have provincially yes I I know a little bit more or at least have points known more about the French league than a than a person probably ought to, 
uh, while still maintaining his sanity. You're not gonna, you're not gonna start doing the scout leaderboards on them, are you? Uh, well, I, I could in a second. I mean, all it takes is some information. I just need to know some strikeout numbers and walk numbers, maybe some home run numbers. In any case, my point is Max Kepler, Mike Newman. I believe Max Kepler is a product of those, uh, European, of that European Academy. I think he's German. He's German. That's my point. He's a German person. He probably uh, knows his way around a, a pint of lager or Hefeweizen. He is 19. Right. Well, that's drinking age in Germany. Oh, yeah. It is. They might, the, the, the twins might want to watch that. They might want to watch that. In any case, uh, you saw Max Kepler this year. Um, kind of. You, you kind, kind okay, of. Okay, you kind of saw him. No, I, I went to – I drove five hours to Elizabethton. Oh. Elizabethton, um, what state is that? Tennessee. Okay. I think. Uh, it was it was Appalachia at its best. Is it, uh, I mean, I is, it I pretty? Wrote, is it pretty there? Well, you know, I wrote a little bit about it in the piece yeah. the, the on just some of the Twins prospects because I wanted to share some things about the park. Like, literally, if you opened a side door to the park and rec field that they played at, um, you could walk, like, 20 feet to, like, this beautiful flowing river down, like, the Appalachian Mountains or something like that. There was this gorgeous flowing cold river, like, and and the general manager was like, yeah, the trainers take the pitchers out there, and after they do their throwing workouts, they do some calisthenics in the rapids, and I'm just like, what? Seriously? This is, like, awesome. But the park itself was, like, this old parks and rec park, and at one point, it, it was kind of funny because the general manager, I, I guess they didn't have people who um, actually asked for media credentials that often, and um, he was kind of giving us the tour of the park or whatever. He's like, yeah, there's nobody using the suite tonight, so if you guys want to go out there, um, feel free. And it was a single wide on stilts. A single so, wide? is like like a trailer. Yeah, like a single wide trailer on stilts, and they referred to it as the suite. Yeah, okay. Which was kind of amusing charming, and charming yeah, yeah it's very charming and then you 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 know the park and rec field and and their idea of season tickets was for fans to bring uh lawn chairs to the park and at the end of games cover them in plastic bags to keep them free from the elements and to bungee cord them to the parts of the park where they wanted to save their seat okay and literally like first pitch there were people in lawn chairs sitting down the right field line, like in the game of play. They should get out. Yeah, they should. They should. They should. And I always find like these rookie leagues amazing, um, uh, especially being my first trip to the Abbey. That um, you know, like Byron Buxton was on the field, and they signed him for six million bucks. Yeah. Like you could literally reach out and touch like your six billion dollar investment. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You did so that. that what, why did you why did you try and touch Byron Buxton, Mike Newman? I did not. Why I did you, not. I just watched him Byron very closely Buxton for the, during the I watched world. him very closely the entire game, but I did not you know but you're just seeing these guys like so close and they're they're buying drinks from the concession stand and yeah. getting hot dogs and like walking right by the fans and stuff like that, and you go, but that's an awful lot of money to be invested in just having like a free for all out here, you know? It's yeah, just, but you can't. I mean, well, how much thing. can you protect them, right? I mean, you got to let them be people still. 
yeah, you got to let them be people, but six million bucks is a lot of bucks to not, you know. Uh, it's it's just a very interesting kind of dynamic when you're in at the minor league level and just how close that that fans get the players and stuff like that. And I guess the same could be said about big league guys in in Arizona because my trip to Surprise was a little bit, you know, uncomfortable just in how you know the the, the throngs of people that were chasing you, Darvish and stuff like that. It, mm-hmm. it was a little bit like uncomfortable and uh and uh i worry for these these professional athletes safety kind of way um all right so i want to say two things uh, one is that I, I cannot guarantee that he was a product of the mlb academy in europe i can guarantee uh that um he played in the german league he played okay. for bookbinder legionnaire regensburg of the bundesliga their bundesliga He's from berlin yeah, I- and, and you know, getting back to Kepler, I mean, I saw him take infield outfield, which I'm, which is why I'm glad I got there early. I saw him take infield outfield and around at batting practice. And then when the lineup cards came out, uh, he wasn't in it, so God. he didn't actually play in the game. God. And then the very next day, I went over to Greenville to see Bubba Starling and Carlos Correa. And not only was it a beautiful sunny day with batting practice canceled because of fictitious rain, but then Correa wasn't in the starting lineup either. So it was a bummer of a trip. But, you know, seeing Kepler take infield outfield and take batting practice, it's not a total loss. I mean, um, really nice swing, good balance, um, ability to to hit with power to all fields, um, good size. He's probably going to grow out of, whatever speed he has some, and he's already started to slow down. So he might not be a center fielder in the end. But there were a lot of things to like about him, and, and looking at him as a very balanced, good baseball player. And it was kind of interesting. A couple weeks later, somebody had sent me a tweet or something that Law had referred to him as an above-average regular, which even just in a session of BP and watching him field outfield, you could see um, a lot of that kind of ability and, and more ability than the other guys on the field. And um, with that said, more ability than most of the outfielders that I've seen this season just in a short spurt. You know, it's so strange uh, how things work in, in, in the pace of development at that age because this was actually – this was Kepler's third season um, in the rookie league. Uh, mm-hmm. I think all with Elizabethton, right? And And his first season, he had zero home runs and 150 plate appearances. And last year, he had one home run in over 200 plate appearances. This year, in, in just a little more than 250 plate appearances, he had 10 home runs. Mm-hmm. You know, it just the, – the rate of development that you could go from basically – you go from essentially zero home runs and 400 plate appearances to 10 of them in, you know, about two-thirds Less of than it. 300. Yeah, right. I mean, at that age, you know – I mean, I mean, it's it's so hard to tell. I mean, if you're just looking at the numbers, you say, well, you know, is that physical development? Because it could be, you know, partially be randomness too. Uh, but but it does strike me that at that age, when you go from 17 to 18 to 19, like a lot can happen in a year. Well, that's the one thing that you know I I credit watching Julio Teran at three different years for for teaching me a lot about this when I was first starting. Um, and and Kepler actually his first year was in the Gulf Coast League, and he had been repeating the appy. 
Oh, okay, right, right. So that's so, the, yeah. Yeah, but, but it was all three rookie ball leagues. And first thing about the Appy is that the Appy is better quality competition than the Gulf Coast League. Okay. So that following the year, he kind of built on the initial numbers a little, which is a, a good thing. And then repeating the level this year, he broke out in a, in a big way at, at that level. Um, but, you know, Teron, watching him over three years, really taught me how top-flight prospects, just how quickly they can improve as compared to other, you know, good prospects on the field. Like, Teron's rate of development was just phenomenal, and um, you see that quite a bit, where, where you may see a guy one spring, you may go, oh, he's good, yeah, I liked him, you know, there's still a lot of work to do, and then you see him the next year, and you're like, wow, this guy did a lot of work. And I, I get a chance to do that more uh, now living in Atlanta, because there are a lot of teams that I will see in the uh, South Atlantic League, like the Braves, for example, and then they may come pass back through Chattanooga with Mississippi two years later. So I can look at that rate of development, and there's a there's a really a lot of learning to be had from um, doing that. But, you know, with Kepler, I mean, he's 19, and he was in the GCL at 17, and he was in the Appy at 18. So uh, some of this might just be his age catching up to the level. And, you know, next year he'll be age-appropriate for low A, and he'll be age-appropriate pretty much here on out for every level he's at. So he can get a really strong gauge of, or a better gauge statistically of what kind of player he is um, because he is going to be an appropriate, appropriately aged prospect for the competition he's playing against. Mm-hmm. So those numbers where they may have been suppressed as being young for the level are now more appropriate. Hey, listen, uh, Mike Newman, uh, because I'm a sort of VIP type with Fangraphs, uh, I have a meeting to get to. Uh, imminent. It's imminent. It's it's imminent. The meeting is imminent, is what I mean to say. It's happening soon. I need to get over there. Uh, so we got to shut this down. But it's been great. Yes, for us to talk like about two guys in an hour. Yeah, sure. that's right. No, I, we did it. cover three, actually. We did cover three. Great. Uh, but a good great. discussion, generally. Um, and, I, and I was poking fun at the Hewlett podcast for only getting to four. Yeah, that's right. We didn't, we didn't even satisfy and that. So he wins. He did. He, he won. We really rifled through him over on that show. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You did, yeah. and and there was even duplicate guys talked about this week. So it's, it's progress. Although, did I get? Well, yes, I got you to mention uh, Corbin Joseph. Yes, you did. Right, you I, win. I did win too. I did the not. The only one that didn't win was me. Yeah, I didn't get uh, Singrani out there. Although, as he's a, he's another Italian who I think deserves more credit. Anyway, listen, Mike Newman. Scouting the Sally and Fangraphs it was great to have you on the show. Stick around for a minute, but it's been great to have you on the recorded portion. All right, Carson. Thanks. All right. Uh, I hope to do it again soon. Yeah, that's Mike Newman. Uh, I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio.